Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, where I uh, study Christian things, and I write as a journalist, and I uh, make coffee at a comic book store. I'm Matt. I'm the Assistant Professor of Media Studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. <laughs> um, I study media and cultural studies and Christianity leftist politics. I teach just way too many classes. <laughs> <laughs> do you teach them on that NPR voice that you just had? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> soothing them, soothing them right into the uh, loving arms of good grades. That's right. And then uh, when they get A's, I give them tote bags. <laughs> <laughs> the only true proper reward uh that's good <laughs> yeah. well uh it is 2018 2018 and i don't know about you but i don't feel the same as antonio gramsci i don't uh i don't actually hate new year's uh i kind of like it even yeah it's, um, it's okay and I've, I've been thinking about it yeah it's fine i i made some top 10 lists i uh participated in that fad um how about you matt how was your your new year's uh, my New Year's was good. I didn't make any lists. I'm not much of a list person. Um, my New Year's was completely... Okay. Uh, well, I um, we didn't go to any parties or anything like that. Um, my wife and I just hung out at home. Uh, I played <laughs> I played the game Uncharted 4 and found some hidden treasure. And my wife fell asleep on the couch until I woke her up again. Nice. Yeah, so it was good. Um, yeah, it was, it was very fun. A very enjoyable evening. I did all the things I like doing, uh, playing video games uh, by myself and uh, sitting on a couch. Those are my two favorite things. If I made a top a ten list, entry. those would be numbers one and two. So, it's good. <laughs> uh, that's good. That's very good. Uh, Bernico's Rockin' Eve is a place that I would want to be. Yeah, there are no, uh, there were no balls being dropped or anything, but uh, <laughs> did drink some sparkling grape juice, so... Oh, nice. There's that. There you go. Were you at church or uh, still at home? <laughs> no, still at home for that one. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? What did you do? <laughs> um, we, Emily and I, went to a our neighborhood bar. And uh, because it was our neighborhood bar, we knew too many people there and uh, got a little bit too, um, a little too inebriated is the polite way of putting it, I guess. Um, there is, though, a very cool tradition I learned. Uh, so some of our friends here in Toronto are Catalan. If you don't know, they're trying to vote for independence in Catalonia. I mean, they voted for it, but it's not, it's all very confusing. Anyway, people in Catalan, uh, in, on New Year's Eve, they, uh, they eat 12 grapes in like the first minute of the new year, which is, uh, something I was very excited to do. Did not choke one time, did finish success. So I guess I've got good luck cashing that in yeah that's really good so when you say eat 12 grapes do you mean like a quick game of chubby bunny or are you just like do you gotta chew them one by one i mean the strategy is up to you as uh, far as i can tell okay um i mean i was i was not going the chubby bunny route i just felt like that was a recipe for a certain death <laughs> um but uh, i did succeed just by pounding them over and over nice so, so one one by one chew them up swallow it right yeah, I mean, mine was more like two by two, I guess. Oh, okay. Yes. Huh. And that worked it out. It was real, real Noah's Ark style. Yeah. Good. <laughs> what happens <laughs> if you don't eat them all? Uh, that I don't know. I mean, I really should have asked. I didn't even know what the stakes were. I guess, um, I don't know, some 
some Catalan equivalent to like Krampus or something probably steals mm-hmm. away your your good New Year. That's my guess. <laughs> the grape, the grape Krampus. The Grapus. <laughs> oh no! Here he comes. Here comes Grapus. <laughs> <laughs> Grapus is not someone you want to be on the wrong side of. That's all I know about the Grapus. That's true. The Grapus. Uh, he just looks like a big. He's like the, uh, like a California raisin, but not dried out yet. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's the only way to defeat it, actually, is to dry the grapus out. So you have to wait for sunrise. You have to make it through the night. <laughs> oh, no. Uh, all right. Uh, TM. That's our intellectual property. Nah, just kidding. <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> uh, unless you make a lot of money, in which case we will care. Yeah, only then. You heard it, you heard it here, folks. Uh, yeah. We're, we're litigious around here. Uh, we're not. I wouldn't even know how to get a lawyer. I don't um, even know where to ask for one. Yeah, nope. The, the uh, lawyer store. <laughs> yeah, just call up the lawyer school. See if they have any on hand. Uh, <laughs> all right, well, it's the new year. You know what that means. We've got to talk about Christianity and the left and what is going on. What's going on this year? Uh, so <laughs> naturally, we read an essay from decades ago. Just a <laughs> to long, try to think long about time. <laughs> from uh, 1984. I just looked. That's how long yeah. ago it was. So it's a good, I'm no it's a good year. But it's a while ago. I wasn't even born yet, so that's cool. Yeah, same. Wasn't even close to being born. No, not even nope. a twinkle in my parents' eyes. Um, mm-hmm. But it was good. So the essay, <laughs> everyone's on their ed- the edge of their seats now. I know that. Uh, <laughs> the essay is by Cornell West uh, in the news recently for things I guess we're not going to talk about on this podcast. Uh, and it is an essay called Religion and the Left. Simple as that. Yeah, so uh, so we read it because people keep asking us about the opposition between Marxist materialism and religion. It's a question that we get a lot, and usually that question assumes that they're opposite things. So people are wondering how they can reconcile these things or why we think that we can reconcile them, depending on uh, your persuasion, I guess. Uh, but I think things are a little more complicated than that. Uh, we've talked about this before on the show in a bunch of other contexts, but now we're going to do it a little more intentionally and Cornell West's essay really helps us figure that out. So it was first written for a special issue of the Monthly Review on Religion and the Left, which we heard about because of Kathleen Schultz, the president or secretary, that is, of Christians for Socialism. So she passed it on to us, and she has an essay in the same issue. So find it if you can. Uh, it's neat because Cornell West was writing specifically for socialists. Um, so you get a really neat sort of, you know, guarded argument, I guess. Um, let me make a quick pitch here too. Uh, monthly review is actually very good as like a magazine. Um, and like, it's like Jacobin, but if it was good, so maybe check that out. Maybe check out monthly review if you, if you feel up to it. (laughs) Uh, they review things monthly. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Unlike Jacobin who reviews things too much. (laughs) Daily. And and badly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, cool. Um, Well, yeah. Uh, the entire preface, I guess, before we can get into the, the Cornell West uh, essay, the entire issue is like prefaced at uh, smoothing over what's usually like a moment of tension between religious folks and the left in general. Um, and that uh, tense moment is, um, of course, Marx's quote on religion being the opiate of the masses. Um, so since that's where the issue starts, uh, we thought that's where we'd start, too. It's a it's a good place to kind of get into the conversation. It's from uh, Marx's A Contribution to the Critique of Hegel's Philosophy of Right, written in 1844. <laughs> there you have it. 
Find it, <laughs> find it on Marxist.org for free. The quote that's always causing problems for people uh, goes a little something like this. Religion is the opium of the people. The abolition of religion as the illusory happiness of the people is the demand for their real happiness. To call on them to give up their illusions about their condition is to call on them to give up a condition that requires illusions. The criticism of religion is, therefore, in embryo, the criticism of that veil of tears of which religion is the halo. All right, so that's the quote that people get bent out of shape about a lot uh, when it comes to religion and the left. Um, And uh, the editors of this journal, and I think um, Dean and I too, think this is important to kind of figure out because if you take it out of context, religion is the opium of the people um, or of the masses, as you might hear in other translations. Uh, you might think some different things about it. I don't know. So, Dean, what do people usually think this means, I guess, to to get us going here? Yeah. Um, so people usually assume opium uh, is kind of this reference to, you know, this drug that holds you down. And uh, it's sort of like a maybe you could think of it as like a Plato's cave analogy. So religion is the thing that like chains you to look at things that aren't real. And, uh, you know, real critique and abolishing that would pull people out of, you know, looking at these illusory things and bring them into real life where they don't need opium. Uh, you know, they're, they're sober, I guess, and sort of soberly looking at the world. Um, at least that's how I've usually heard it, you know, that it's this kind of thing that keeps people down unnecessarily, keeps the, keeps the wool over their eyes. I think one weird thing about that is that opium, especially in this uh, context, isn't really, like, considered a, a super bad thing. And uh, we can sort of see a little bit more about that if we expand this quote so matt you just mentioned taking this out of context uh that's the thing that i think happens a ton and it's what gives people an overly negative perspective on what marx thinks about religion so the the notorious quote religion is the opium of the people uh it's prefaced by two extremely important sentences uh so marx writes religious suffering is at one and the same time, the expression of real suffering and a protest against real suffering. Religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of soulless conditions. So uh, that's not exactly the kind of perspective that you would get from a kind of uh, adolescent, like new atheist type critique of religion as a, um, you know, this this bad form of illusion necessarily. Uh, and it sort of sheds light on what Marx means by the opium of the people. Um Opium is is a weird thing. All drugs are, are weird things. And in this kind of situation, the idea that Marx is trying to get across is that religion is the kind of thing that kind of helps you get through the day. It's like having a drink at the end of the night or something like that. Mm. Um, and it's this thing that uh, makes you feel like you can you can get through all the all the shit that you have to go through. You don't have an option of getting out of. And the danger of that is, of course, that then you learn to accept your condition, and this is just kind of the thing that helps you cope with it. Uh, But I think Marx is actually presenting a a sympathetic picture of this, um, sort of seeing it as something that naturally develops as a symptom of capitalism. And like he says, uh, religious suffering is an expression of suffering, and it's a protest against that suffering. So there's a lot packed into just this one paragraph, and I think it's, it's good that the uh the editors here kind of open up uh that quote right off the bat in their own volume which precedes cornell west so i don't know matt what do you think about kind of expanding this paragraph out yeah the the point i think that we see here is that like um that religion happens within the larger material conditions and uh that it's not bad but just like a part of it that has to be figured out it's a part of culture 
just like art or you know whatever else is art music poetry all those other things that marxists love to talk about um but uh religion is in there too it's a it's a product of the culture that we live in uh so when we kind of take a step back and think about religion from this point of view a materialist point of view um we get a little bit of a different perspective than just like religion is bad and it makes people stupid or something um that it's just like it's a response to disappointment and a response to uh, a feeling of like lack in the world and a way to kind of cope with that lack uh so i think that marx isn't like um here like people usually think that he's like criticizing religion as evil or like uh something that leads people astray it's it's quite the opposite here that religion is something that people do to kind of cope with the material conditions that they live in yeah for sure and it's also uh it's just kind of a uh i guess it just gives the lie to the idea of this kind of rabid uh totally atheist brutally atheist marxist impression about religion in general too like okay there's no denying that marx is an atheist and if you go on to read the rest of this uh essay it's not like you're going to come out with a picture where Marx is like, I don't know, maybe religion is cool, or maybe it could yeah. be cool. Like, he definitely doesn't think religion is cool. He wants to abolish religion. That is true. Um, but I think that he has a way more nuanced understanding of how religion functions for people and a way more nuanced understanding of why it actually means something in a really core sort of depth part of people's being. And I guess it's just important to kind of wrestle through that side of Marx, uh, one that's willing to... Um, I guess just enter into the basic life experience of folks. Uh, and this is a good religion is a good kind of case in point, I guess. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, to sort of map out oppression and how it works, you have to look at all of the different like identities people might share. And um, being a religious person, being a religious subject is one of those identities. Yeah. So maybe we can put it this way. Marx, if you're a strict Marxist materialist, then yeah, sure. You can't really reconcile being a, a Christian person and being a Marxist in that kind of sense. Like they are conflicting sort of orthodoxies, but also like, I don't know, that's just a bad idea. And there are, are a lot of reasons why that Cornell West, I think really helpfully points out. So in some ways, Cornell West goes beyond Marx. And in other ways, he's actually trying to be as faithful as he possibly can to some of the driving concerns of Marx. And maybe pushing Marx a little further than Marx himself, or especially certain kinds of Marxists, wouldn't want to go. Uh, yeah, does that sound right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, um, the article that we're about to talk about by Cornel West is very much a set, like um, a piece of like I would say like post-Marxist sort of writing, in the sense that it's someone who's trying to deal with Marx in a way that is Marxist, but not limited by the constraints of Marx, which is a funny mm-hmm. way of talking and a confused way of talking for sure. Um, but what Cornell West does, I think is like, takes up the, like the task of materialism and, uh, tries to figure out like how it is that religion can work, uh, with the left and how the left can work with the religious. seems like it's worth, uh, worth our time for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, cool. So Cornell West opens this essay. Let's just kind of dive into it. Maybe and we can circle back to some of these problems as we get through it. Uh, yeah. He opens the the kind of essay dealing with three questions and then goes on to organize them in a really super helpful way, uh, a very helpful way if you're trying to make a podcast about reading a, a text together. <laughs> yeah. Um, I love when people start off uh, essays and they're like, I have three questions and here they are. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's nice to have the roadmap uh, moving forward. 
Um, so we can kind of deal with these three questions. Like we'll just uh, read one, talk about what he says about it, and then the next one, and then the next one. But here's so... the roadmap, by the way. Here's the roadmap. Um... Yeah, <laughs> good. <laughs> so the questions that West wants to answer are, how do we understand the character and content of religious beliefs and practices? How are we to account for the recent religious upsurges in Latin America, the Middle East, Asia, Africa, Eastern Europe, and the United States? And then finally, in which ways can these upsurges enrich and enhance or delimit and deter the international struggle for human freedom and democracy? Um, okay, so let's just talk, uh, talk about the first one first here. Start at the top. Makes sense to me. That's the materialist <laughs> method right there. You start at the beginning <laughs> of that road. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so how are we to understand the character and content of religious beliefs and practices? Um, so, Dean, what uh, what does this question even mean? Like, what are we trying to get to here? Or what is Cornell West <laughs> trying to tell us here? Yeah, uh, I actually found this to be one of the most exciting sort of theoretical parts of the essay. The essay isn't very long, by the way, if you're, I don't know, stuck in, like, waiting for the bus or something. It's a good thing and to Sorry, read. it's, in, it's um, in the West, the Cornell West reader. That's another place they yeah. can find it. It's probably it on the also, internet, too. Um, it is also in Prophetic Fragments. So you can find it in Prophetic Fragments, Cornell West Reader, Monthly Review, and on the internet, I guess, probably. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, Monthly Review has it uh, in their archives. So if you're playing the oh, nice. home game, you could read it there. The Magnificast <laughs> Cast home game. Um, yeah, it's, it's like Jumanji. If you roll incorrectly, we come into your apartment and drink LaCroix and alcohol i guess till we get home um it's not as threatening as jumanji uh or maybe it's more who knows it's like um, we just sit there and yell at you about materialism for like an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah yeah that's right uh so anyway what's i just saying oh yeah <laughs> so the cool thing about this i think this is one of the most exciting parts kind of theoretically that he gets into in this essay so he wants to say that um there's something about religious beliefs and practices that are important parts of just human life in general that Marxists, for whatever reason, are kind of inoculated against being interested in or working on or seeing them as uh, potential sites of revolution. And I love it because he sort of calls Marxists bluff on this point because he says, well, Marxists are interested in all kinds of other things that are sort of cultural products uh like i don't know art or music or poetry and there have been marxists who advocate for a marxist understanding of extremely highbrow elitist kind of forms of art and then marxists who advocate for very populist kinds of art and west is basically like well if you're going to spend so much time talking about like ultra bourgeois operas or whatever then i don't know probably you should give religion a little more credit than it's gotten uh, and I think that's actually a very good point, that religion is a kind of, um, it's a thing that people experience in the world. It's not just a, I mean, even if you don't believe in it or whatever, uh, there it's a thing that sort of operates on us and with us. And uh, these are practices just like any other practices, just like your beliefs about art could be, you know, dumb or garbage, but that doesn't make them not worth sort of investigating in a in an extremely meaningful kind of way. Yeah, that's right. I mean, this is like the, uh, I mean... Wes is calling out the critical theorists, I guess. Uh, Adorno, Horkheimer, Benjamin, all those guys, they want to think about um, technology and art and music and literature, and that's totally cool. Like, I'm in. Uh, let's read all mm-hmm. about those things. Uh, but why not religion, too? Um, the 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 cool thing that I really appreciate about this chapter, too, is he kind of summarizes. Like He goes through, like, the International Working Men's Association and just kind of, like, goes through each 
sort of iteration and says like, okay, this is what they thought. This is what they thought. And they're all sort of reductionist in these different ways um, where no one really, no one like really like pays a lot of attention to uh, like religious practices. And yeah, it is, it is completely funny because it's just like um, the, the critique of religion is that, you know, it's too idealistic, but, um, but, but like, I don't know, Cornel West stops and thinks about it for a second and says, well, I mean, like, yeah, probably, but Marxism isn't being materialist enough in its analysis here. Uh, so paying more yeah. attention to religious folks and their practices and culture uh, is worth their time. Yeah, that's right. And also, uh, he makes a good point about how Marxists are willing to see art and literature and other domains of cultural life as ideological sites of struggle. Um, you know, so he mentions like Benjamin thinks that film can do that. Um, I don't know. Other Marxists think other media right. can yeah. can sort of be that place. Uh, so why can't religion be one more site of ideological struggle? I think that's a really good simple point. Yeah, it is a simple point. And like, in on the point of Benjamin, like uh, Benjamin's like my I love him so much. He's like a great writer and a, a great theorist and uh, fantastic in so many good ways. Uh, love Benjamin. Um, but he does like in his work he treats. Um, he treats like almost all religious expression as kind of like monolithic and definitely like without a lot of nuance, especially in his uh, essays on uh, the the reproduction of art. He talks about like, you know, the cult value of something, but doesn't talk about like the specific ways things act in culture and how they like are different. Anyways, it's a whole nother like soapbox I could get up on for a minute. <laughs> but like um, all that to say that like Benjamin is a great thinker of technology, I think, and a great thinker of film for sure um an early thinker of film um but like uh lacks nuance when it comes to religious practice and uh yeah though yeah. uh ironically um benjamin himself is extremely influenced by a certain kind of uh, jewish mystic tradition kabbalah uh as filtered through gershom sholem who was uh, a pretty like you know by all means like he could you could read him as like a very boring scholar of religion like he was just pouring over really old texts trying to figure out what was going on in this yeah. uh, strange sect of Judaism and it really motivated Benjamin's theory so it's like they're willing to appropriate parts of it and you know actually like borrow that powerful symbolic language which is really good um but it's almost like they don't pay attention to the ways in which actual sort of religious material in their own world is organized and that's that's a, a bummer yeah it is a bummer um, well, uh, those are some, uh, critiques, I guess, that, uh, are worth thinking through. Uh, but there is another cool part in this section, um, that makes things a little bit more complicated too. It is important to note that it has been primarily third world Marxists for whom issues of praxis and strategy loom large, who have confronted the religious component of culture in a serious way. Um, so, uh, it's not just that, like, Marxists at large have been bad about thinking about um, religion in terms of religion in like a materialist way, but like um, it's mostly just been like Western Marxists. Um, yeah. So then he right. kind of goes on to talk talk through a few different people who um, uh, a few different people from like uh, Latin America or like China. He references Mao specifically, who um, are people who can think about the I don't know religious and cultural practices and how those things kind of play out. Um, I think that's a really helpful point to make that um, Western Marxists, I don't know, whoever is, who all is, is included in that canon, but like uh, <laughs> they, they don't always get it quite right, but there are also other places we can look to um, in South America or in, you know, Southeast Asia or whatever, um, China, 
uh, and those yeah. people they've got it figured out. They have they have some different insights than you know the canon of critical theorists in the West, and we should pay attention to those people. That's awesome. I mean, that's yeah, what we've been awesome. kind of doing in the past few weeks when we've talked about Christians for Socialism and stuff. But um, just another helpful reminder that that's uh, those are the voices to listen to. Yeah, that's right. I like too that there's a kind of decolonial sort of vibe to everything that Wes is trying to get across here, and it's. I mean, I guess I read this as you know, it's an essay addressed to socialists, and it's not just like trying to stick up for religion for the sake of it. We'll get into that more later on, um, but it's more like it's making a real theoretical point that Marxism does come out of a European tradition, and it does for that reason carry the vestiges of that, which is sort of overlooking what's happening in other parts of the world not necessarily being willing to be challenged by those kinds of uh, indigenous like movements and um, theoretical moves that happen there uh, on that side of capitalism. So yeah, it's like, I don't know, even if you're not a religious person, I feel like this is a really good sort of piece to help Marxists think through how they can actually sort of uh, engage other cultures and in many cases, the most oppressed cultures in the world. Yeah, for sure. I mean, last week when we talked about the gospel in Solentaname, I mean, it should be obvious that that's the case, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that, like, the oppressed of, like, quote, third world countries um, are sometimes religious. So figure it out. Exactly. <laughs> um, cool. All right. Should we go to question number two? Does it seem like it's time? Yeah, it's time. All right, so uh, just to remind you of the first question, it was, uh, how are we to understand the character and content of religious beliefs and practices? So, um, I don't know, understand them as, like, important, uh, as important as other uh, other Religion other matters to people, and, and it practices. should matter to you, too. Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. pretty straightforward. Yeah. Um, all right, question two. Uh, how are we to account for the recent religious upsurges in Latin America, the Middle East, Asia, Africa, Eastern Europe, and the United States? And those all um, occurred, he's referring to, in the 1980s. Uh, but, I mean, many of them are still sort of with us. So it's a really interesting kind of point, because it's like, why do these sort of revivals uh, occur? And he has like a really great nuanced um, view, I think. So, Matt, uh, how how are we to account for it? Yeah, man. Uh, so if the last chapter was the one that you're excited about this or the last section, this section is the one I'm most excited about. Um, <laughs> so, uh, it's cool. He kind of goes through these, um, few different like, uh, places where these revivals are happening, um, and thinks about what they mean in those kind of contexts. Uh, the first one is the one that I got most excited about cause it's so right. Even though he wrote this in the eighties before I was born, before Dean was born, um, <laughs> he's still super right about, uh, about what um what these revivals mean in like first world sorts of situations and i i guess like you know the united states is one of those situations um so this is what west says about first world countries and um and religious revivals he says so in first world countries religious responses often in nostalgic forms but also in utopian ones are widespread given the relative lack of long-standing ties or traditional links to a religious past these responses are intertwined with the prevailing myths of European modernity, nationalism, racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, anti-Orientalism, and homophobia. This is why religious, as well as national, uh, nationalist and ethnic revivals are usually dangerous, though they also can be occasions of progressive opportunity. Such opportunity is significant in that religious impulses are one of the few resources for a moral and political commitment beyond the self in the capitalist culture uh, of consumption. Um, so, uh, this bit here is really interesting to me because I guess like, I just feel like a lot of resonance with it. I guess I think it's like a good descriptor of the world that we live in currently. 
that the first world uh, sort of re- religion revival is one that looks for like pre-capitalist belonging that is not usually solidarity um, or like you know some type of some type of like socialist kind of feeling. Um, it's like a nostalgia that tries to think of like the good old days, like a pre-capitalist good old days. And we yeah. see this all the time in like uh, very conservative types of Christianity, that type of nostalgia. I mean, like it's <laughs> y- y'all, it's Rod Dreher right here. This is the type of thing that he is after. <laughs> that type of nostalgia for that Christian community where you can go over to your neighbor's house and hide out in their basement from the secret police. It's like, um, <laughs> it's just like yearning for a time when Christians were just Christians again, you know? Um, so uh, that uh, the the link that Cornell West provides there between like the conservative aspect of religious revival and nostalgia was really helpful to me. That makes sense a lot. I think that's a really good way of characterizing that situation. Um, yeah, really I think that's right. Crappy nostalgia. Yeah, and there's also uh, a cool move here that West does that really resonates with Marx. I think because uh, obviously, like. I think probably everybody has a, a sort of, I don't know, a picture in their mind of a Christian who fits this bill or like, I don't know, make America great again. Like that's the whole, the whole shit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's, it's really easy to just be like, well, that's super stupid. And it is obviously super stupid. Um, but what Marx tries to do with the way that he looks at religion is to see how it's symptomatic of capitalism. And West does that here too. So it's not just that these people are stupid um like that's not that's not the driving reason for like bourgeois religious revival right um instead uh west says the culture of capitalist societies has for the most part failed to give existential moorings and emotional assurance to their inhabitants and that's what these kind of religious revivals provide uh so they step in where people feel sort of free floating or like as marx puts it and with Engels in the manifesto right that all that a solid melts into air mm-hmm. uh so you're like floating around and then all of a sudden these kind of uh these ways that religion rebuilds uh these previous um identities that are actually very bad in many cases uh like anti-semitism racism sexism etc they become the ways that people kind of find their way in the confusing like amalgam that is capitalist society so i think that's also really helpful that like it's not like it makes it a sympathetic point or anything like that but it helps to understand why that is the case yeah i think so and i don't know you can see you guess you can see that like that um the the nostalgia of the nostalgia of like that weird type of conservative christianity embodied in like the aesthetics of capitalism like where capitalism is always trying to like i don't know um like cater to that type of nostalgia like um cracker barrel is like the best example of this like the restaurant (laughs) cracker barrel is exactly that type of like first world nostalgia looking for a pre-capitalist belonging um in the sense that it's like you walk in it's like man remember when your grandma would make you some real gross pancakes (laughs) <laughs> we do she like she pulled it out of a out of a bag or out of the freezer <laughs> yeah that's right um anyways that's that aesthetic is so strong in american culture like we try to reproduce it all the time constantly um in some like really harmful ways ways that are probably more harmful than cracker Barrel, even though cracker Barrel is probably pretty bad <laughs> oh shoot uh okay this is a complete sidetrack but also proves the point even more i just got my haircut this week and uh and uh i was too far away from a great clips so I went to this place called <laughs> Hair Saloon for Men. And it was like nice. uh it was uh like the old the beginning like you walk in the door and 
it was like an old timey barbershop, but it was actually just like <laughs> a great clips inside the shell of an old timey barbershop. Uh, it was really bad, and I think catered. Did you to feel a... like you were in Westworld? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, except I, I was like, I was so uncomfortable and like weirded out by the very like the atmosphere of such a fragile masculinity that you couldn't even get your hair cut in a normal place. I was like, I was hoping that there would be robots that would come kill me because it was just like so embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> uh, I love that. Dude, no, it even gets worse though too is like when, when when you like walk in and you like, you know, you tell them like, hey, I want a haircut. They're like, okay, cool. Can we get you a drink? And I'm like, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so it's like they had Coke and that's, they also had like uh, non-alcoholic beer if I really wanted to oh, just nice. like – seal that sort of like um simulacra of old-timey manhood uh yeah that that. real uh prohibition era haircutting that's really important (laughs) dude it is a wild and stupid world that we live in uh capitalism (laughs) is the worst it feeds on nostalgia and like it sucks (laughs) it's so stupid (laughs) uh it's it's like not only stupid like you just said but it is also very stupid yeah 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 uh, no, that's a very. Those are two extremely good examples. Uh, for those of you working on your your PhD in drive studies, you're really getting a lot of uh, a lot Oof. of bonus content this episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> cool. So that's the first. That's the first reason that uh, religious upsurges have happened uh, around the world. This is kind of nostalgia in capitalist society that helps kind of root you when you're floating around. Root you in, in the in the wonders of Cracker Barrel. Yeah. Um, so uh, the second second point here. So West says that religious revivals emerge because they are uh, popular responses to capitalist domination in traditional societies, and this is sort of a third world point. So um, one way that I guess uh, oppressed people you can sort of understand them finding a language for uh, articulating their um, oppression is in these kinds of religious ties that do in some ways escape uh capitalism proper either by being pre-capitalist or having a different kind of imaginative set um of of coordinates uh this is one kind of way that religion pops up and maybe this is kind of where west starts showing like the value for uh for building a movement in understanding religion yeah um again like this part of this part of the uh the essay made me think back to i don't know when we were just reading through uh the gospel and soul and when they were talking about mary and uh like the magnificat Mm -hmm. (laughs) like what would they say if mary was here they would say she's a communist right it's like the it's a way to articulate um an like an anti-capitalist stance like a a response to the dom like the domination of a traditional society um it's a way a vocabulary to uh, talk about oppression. Yeah, one also very cool point that West makes here, and I think this applies especially well in South America, and there are some other parts in the world too, but in particularly South and I guess you know Latin America generally. Uh, so he says that um, the response of liberation theology was not only rooted in Christian thought and practice; it also flowed from the major free space in repressive regimes, the church, and given the overwhelming roman catholic character of this movement uh and then he goes on to sort of mention vatican ii and the meddling conference that we mentioned a while back Mm. um he says these new strategies became more open to personal meanings social adjustments and political struggles informed by prophetic elements in the scriptures and ecclesiastical tradition as well as progressive social and historical analyses and then he goes on to like do a whole laundry list of different uh, liberation theologians men and women from different parts of the world uh and i think what's really important about that point is that in many places, uh, the church, despite being part of a colonialist legacy for sure, 
uh, is also um, historically part of, uh, I guess, like it contains these kind of unstable um, relationships that don't fit necessarily super comfortably with like a dictator in Chile or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the the church might also make you think that like, um, I don't know, the Pinochet regime change is bad because you remember that there were socialists uh, who were priests. So um, I think that's really cool that like understanding in some places in the world, like it was the church that provided um, these kind of free associative spaces outside the oppressive regime, like counter hegemonic spaces. Uh, So yeah, I guess pretty simple point on this question. Um, There's a materialist side to religion that manifests not just in the oppressive kind of ways that we saw in the first uh, reason for religious revivals, but also in these kind of liberating ways uh, in, in societies where the church is like a a good social glue. Um, But there's also another, uh, a third one, um, a third reason that West gives. So maybe Matt, do you want to shed some light on that? Uh, manifestation yeah for sure um so the the third type is uh revivals that are anti-western forms of popular resistance to capitalist denomination capitalist domination um so uh west uh here's a quote from west that kind of characterizes what he's talking about such resistance like all forms of resistance can be restorative and reactionary as in iran or progressive and prophetic as among many palestinians um so this like uh is um similar to the second one i suppose but um a lot more anti-imperialist i suppose i guess like it conjures uh different geographies when we think about anti-western forms of popular resistance um thinking a lot about palestine these days because of the like contemporary politics uh and iran too i guess but yeah uh, (laughs) (laughs) but uh you get it though it's uh it's a way to uh talk about uh like western hegemony um it's kind of interesting this point sticks out to me the most um that like the the first two points the first two types of like revivals religious revivals i think um they to me they like give me images of like uh specifically christian situations yeah the third one i guess is is more interesting because uh for whatever reason uh, when I read it, I think of a lot more non-Christian situations. I guess because they say because he says Iran and Palestine, but uh, I guess like uh, the anti-Western forms of popular resistance to capitalist domination uh, it makes me think of um, religions that are not Christianity and the ways that they can function as popular forms of resistance. Um, I don't know. So uh, Islam, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, etc., all have worked, I think, in those ways and some some different times. Um, so it's worth thinking about in that, in that sense too. Yeah. Also, also cool how those things sort of map up with Christians and, and don't map, map up with Christians in some situations like, uh, yeah. like cop Coptic Christians and Palestinian Christians, um, hanging out with, you know, uh, other people, other Palestinians of other faiths. Uh, it's interesting because a lot of Christians don't even identify with Palestinian Christians that can't mm. even imagine that there are Palestinian Christians. Right. Um, so that kind of anti-Western form of popular resistance, uh, it's I think it's kind of like importantly non-Christian because in a real like social sense, those people aren't even if they profess the same creeds on a Sunday or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, huh. Um, the this section is concluded with some pretty strong, interesting words as well. So I'll just read this bit and we can talk about it. Um, In short, the religious revivals, along with nationalistic and ethnic ones, fundamentally result from the inability of capitalist civilization 
to provide context and communities wherein meaning and value can be found to sustain people through the traumas of life. And since there can be no potent immorality without such context and communities, these religious revivals represent an ethical challenge to Marxism. And uh, skipping down a little bit. And as this capitalist world continues its deterioration, religious revivals will more than likely persist. The great question is, will such revivals enable or disenable the left in its struggle for human freedom and democracy? Um, this is like a really strong point to end on because I think West is right that like um, capitalism, like like you said earlier, the quote from Marx, right? All the solid melts into air. Um, like moral values in capitalism are like aleatory. Like they just kind of like float mm-hmm. and change because like that's what capitalism does, right? It like um, be- because it's like whim, like it's it's built on the whims of the market. Like I don't know, some moral values might have to change if if like others become profitable or something. Um, so like uh, they they leave you in a lurch. You uh, you don't have those like strong values that you grew up with, and you're like you know always out looking for them. And that's what religion can give you, and it can be a real uh, motor for other types of bad ideologies. Um, I guess uh, this all this all makes me think about um, when we read the uh, Fry Beto book with um, Fidel. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, it's just like, like, will such revivals enable or disenable the left in its struggle for human freedom and democracy? Uh, can we um, can we imagine a religious vocabulary that is socialist, so that like when people go looking for, I don't know, when these revivals happen, um, that people aren't um, you know, being mobilized towards ends that are uh, against their best interests. Yeah, that's right. It also reminds me of when we talked to Matt Sitman about the moral austerity, he called it, in the left. Uh, and he was calling, I think, for something somewhat similar here uh, to what Wes is saying, that uh, you do need a kind of potent morality. That's the word the West uses to mobilize folks. And it's something that cuts through uh, that commodification of capitalism. Um, that aleatory sort of moral valuation. And I think that's actually a really, you know, it's it's a dangerous thing uh, for sure, but it's also a really important way of getting people on board. Uh, I don't know. It seems like that great question uh, that, is, that West puts at the end, will such revivals enable or disenable the left? Um, I mean, that's the question of 2018, right? There's like a whole rash of articles about the religious left coming out now um, and the religious right as well. And it's like, well, it's kind of up for grabs. There's not a whole lot of religious socialist vocabulary out there, uh, but there are people thinking about it and there are people attuned to it. Um, I think that's a a good, um, maybe like a good New Year's call. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. uh, Get the Christian left going in a good direction. I guess that is, uh, that brings up, I guess, a concern um, I always feel about these types of things, about the idea of like moral potency, which is a good term, by the way. Uh, but it's always concerning to me because it's like um, I see a lot of moral potency, uh, but I see it extinguished really quickly. Or like, um, mm. like the the moral potency of any like given situation is there, and like you know, religious people might feel um, called to think about it for a second, or like um, organize around it for a second, but like never in a systemic way. It's always really troubling to me. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know exactly what to say about that, but like. Um, I can like uh, I was at, I was at a commission committee, and I can like really easily get people excited uh, to 
um, you know, uh, give money to like bail out prisoners or whatever. And like, they can feel good about that, but like, they can't see for some reason, like the systemic problem that's like right behind that. Um, so like moral yeah, potency yeah. is good, but it seems like there's an element that's missing. Like just moral potency doesn't get you all the way. Like you have to have some type of critique or analysis behind it that, uh, people can actually use and think about. Yeah, that's right. And it is morality is a weird thing in that way because it gives people the illusion that they've sort of done something when they might just be sort of uh, treating a, a gaping wound with a Band-Aid or whatever. Um, that's certainly true. Yeah. Um, morality is, like, uh, really affective in that way. Like, it's good um, that it's affective in that way, but it's also a danger that mm-hmm. it makes you feel really like you've done justice or something. And uh, maybe you've done a little bit, but you you miss like a bigger picture if you're distracted right. by just the affective nature of it. Right. Um, cool. So let's move on to the third question. We'll, we'll do a quick uh, recap. So how are we to account for the recent religious upsurges all over the world? That's a question Wes is asking. So in the first world, you account for it by seeing um, uh, religion as a, a mooring point that anchors you in all the uh, all the things that makes the first world the worst world, uh, Cracker Barrel. All these, uh, yeah, that's right, Cracker Barrel. Uh, that's that's it. That's how you count for religious <laughs> upsurges in the United States, Cracker Barrel. Um, and then number two, uh, they emerge in sort of third world societies because they um, these revivals took place in spaces that sort of escaped or had a counter hegemonic space at least um, with re- with respect to the dominant uh, oppressive hegemonies that were ruling there at the time and then lastly they are sort of anti-western vocabularies so they were they revive because they are um already foreign to western capitalism uh so they're kind of naturally enemies in the first place so those are like the three basic basic ways west wants to talk about it here so let's move on to the last one where west says in which ways can these upsurges enrich and enhance or delimit and deter the international struggle for human freedom and democracy. Uh, what got you going there, Matt? Uh, yeah, let me just jump right into this quote that I think is a good place to start the conversation. Um, okay, so Wes says, The major contribution religious revivals can make to left strategy is to demand that Marxist thinkers and activists take seriously the culture of the oppressed. This fundamental shift in the sensibilities and attitudes of Marxists requires a kind of de-secularization and de-Europe Europeanization of Marxist praxis, and a kind of laying bare and discarding of the deep-seated Enlightenment prejudices that shape and mold the perspective and perceptions of most Marxists. Uh, this just got me really excited, though, because uh, de-secularizing and de-Europeanizing Marxist praxis is very good. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, going back to that very first question, right, like, the people that West thinks has it right are people not from the West, not from Europe. Um, people who can think about like the, like the everyday life of, um, of like the oppressed people, like those are the people we should be listening to. Um, it's uh, these types of invitations I think are really liberating for like for Marxists in general, or they should be really liberating in the sense that like um, get rid of some of that baggage that maybe doesn't help and just hinders a lot. <laughs> Um, yeah. So like it, that, that baggage is, is like the baggage of like, um, the colonialism of epistemology that like thinking that like the modernity is something that happens in Europe. And like, that's where the viewpoint of all like 
scientific Marxism is at, right, is from, like, European countries that, um, or whatever. But, like, uh, this is an invitation that asks us to, like, think from a different perspective. Think that they're, like, you know, like, think about the localized knowledges of different places. Go listen to those people first. Um, I think that's a really uh, pretty pretty radical idea in terms of like epistemology of like whose knowledge counts uh as good and um who can speak for the oppressed and it maybe shouldn't be marxist it should be the people who are oppressed um right i don't know it's a cool idea uh yeah it is a cool idea and i think the just the simple point of taking seriously the culture of the oppressed i think that is great and it kind of connects back with what i liked so much about the first question um to see religion as a part of that culture and to see it as a, a real meaningful thing um, that Marxists should engage with. Uh, I think like Marxists have nothing to lose by assuming that religion is important to people. <laughs> like, even if you're a Marxist and you think that it's bogus, like that's fine. I mean, religion sucks a lot. Like I get it. Uh, I w- I, like, I'm not an evangelist. I don't, uh, <laughs> I, I don't sell this. I don't sell this to other folks. I'm like, kind of pissed that i can't really get out myself but like i'm stuck so here i am um but like there's no reason that marxists can't understand that for some folks like this is the the entire way in which they see the world and that's not necessarily a bad thing it just has to be uh directed in the right way or maybe um not even directed i guess it's not like it's not like it has to be directed it's just that you have to like i guess you have to have ears to hear what's actually being said uh when mm-hmm. people are speaking religiously and um, I think that's a really helpful, like, spiritual discipline for Marxists, I guess, if I can put it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that is a pretty good way to put it. Um, just a way to bridge bridge those gaps and, like, I don't know, take seriously the voices of other people, even if they are religious, right? Um, being a religious person doesn't mean you're stupid or, like, irrational. It just means, like, that's, that's the way you see the world, uh, for better or for worse. So... Uh, if you want to reach people and uh, help them organize around, you know, socialist policies, then you have to know how to, like, hear them talk their language. Uh, I don't want to make it seem like Marxists need to learn how to, like, learn the language of re- the religious people so they can, like, kind of translate Marxism into their language. But, like, so that they can, like, take the ways that um, the oppressed know and see the world, like, very seriously. Like, let it affect mm-hmm. their Marxism, I guess. Not, like, just... I get my, my concern is that like you know the idea isn't just to import sort of like leftist ideology into like a different language, but to like have like a sort of mutual trade or something. Yeah, that they're for sure in both directions. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and that's also like I don't know. That's just good materialism. Like, uh, if you're a good materialist, then you can't assume that uh, you've got it all right. That there's mm-hmm. probably somebody else who's got another handle on the material. Uh, and they can help you figure that out. And religion can actually be part of that materialist analysis. Uh, and you can understand it within materialism in that way. Uh, there's a cool quote where West says, um, so he wants to ward off the idea that like, if you're religious, you have like a richer view of the world or something like he's not doing that. Um, so instead he says, religious affiliation is neither the mark of ignorance nor of intelligence. Yet it is the mark of wisdom to understand the conditions under which people do or do not have religious affiliation. Yeah. And I think that's a really just good, simple way of putting it. Like, there are reasons that people are religious, and not all those reasons boil down to, like, I don't know, someone's under the spell of, like, some bourgeois capitalist sorcerer ideology. Right. That's not the case. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, it is a complete mistake to think that, like, people are religious because, like, I don't know. 
they're like they're stupid they're stupid enough to believe it or something right um people mm-hmm. are religious for all kinds of different reasons um material reasons even so figure that out yeah marxists <laughs> yeah that's right um just like uh on kind of the stuff that you were just saying too about trying to like listen to the oppressed on their own terms uh there's a great line that comes toward the end of this essay where west says to take seriously the culture of the oppressed is not to privilege religion but to enhance and enrich the faltering and neglected utopian dimension of left theory and praxis it is to believe not simply in the potential of oppressed peoples but also to believe that oppressed peoples have already expressed some of this potential in their actual products their actual practices mm-hmm. and i think that is just a really good way of understanding to what i guess religious discourse can contribute to the left um it does fill out a kind of utopian vision and there are a lot of leftists on their own terms who figured that out uh so you might as well just listen to folks who are like already very good at it (laughs) (laughs) yeah uh that's really cool um uh, that reminds me um this is in a book dean that you haven't read yet but you will someday (laughs) um (laughs) uh, there's a book called communism in the bible by jose miranda and uh So, listeners, behind the scenes, Dean ordered these books to try to get them delivered to my house when he was here so he could get them, but uh, they didn't come in time, so now I just read them. (laughs) (laughs) I guess kind of... I mean, I don't know. They're in my house. I was going to do something with them. Anyways, (laughs) there's this point... All things uh, in common. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, Anyways, there's this point in Jose Miranda's book uh, where he makes this kind of cool point that is along the same lines that uh, Marx didn't invent communism um, and that, like... Um, other people did communism before like you know marx articulated it um so anyways uh listening to those people is is good like i don't know you can find um you can find a socialist ethic in a lot of different uh cultures and different contexts uh just gotta listen for it and find out where it is yeah that's right uh and also um another good point kind of related to all this that i was just remembering i had marked down here uh west writes marxists must not simply enact negative forms of subversive demystification but also positive forms of popular revolutionary construction of new personal meanings social adjustments and political struggles for human freedom and democracy dang and i think that is just a really important word for the left to hear especially in 2018 mm-hmm. uh, i mean 2017 was like very much the year of negative forms of subversive dis- demystification <laughs> yeah that's right. uh, it's just like i don't know you get like extra points if you can have the the best incisive critique of uh the <laughs> the multitude of things that deserve to be critiqued and uh, i think something about that positive construction is really important i think that's kind of what was trying to happen at like the people's congress uh of resistance that yeah. seemed like a cool experiment um it's the kind of thing that john thornton jr who's a pastor and uh, a long time ago guest on the magnificast um it's the kind of thing that he's always after which i really love that he's like socialism is the kind of thing that people should want like you should be able to explain it to them and they should say yes that is a world that i would like to live in rather than like a, a bludgeoning tool to just i don't know keep like uh telling people why something is a dumb idea or wrong um Definitely, that's like definitely an attitude that I get caught up in more than I should. So I appreciate that a lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, I think that there's something. Okay, so the positive forms of popular revolutionary construction of new personal meanings is so exciting to me because, yeah, I mean, just like what you said, right? Like the Society of the Many and the People's Congress are those types of uh, positive forms of popular revolutionary construction. Um, and that is so cool. 
and like a hugely important thing in 2018, 2000 expropriating. Uh, that's what, that's, the, that's what this year is called, by the way. Uh, I like 2000 that. expropriating. Yeah. Um, it's important because, um, I, I mean, like the affective nature of politics is so important for people. Um, people yeah. like, I don't know. Um, liberals assume that people are just like really rationally thinking like, Oh man, the best way to get politics done is having the best idea and just like espousing it on Twitter or something. But like politics are like super affective. They have a really emotional like aspect to them and like not to say that's irrational or something, but like um people get excited if there's like a positive construction of something that they can participate in, they can find meaning in, they can find personal connections in, uh they can find like moral groundings in. And uh you, to create those things is hard. Um, the People's Congress did a good job of it for sure, and I think that the the religious have a special role to play in that because, um, I mean, like in religion, when you're doing Christianity, I mean, there's like so many. It's like I don't want to reduce its importance by saying it's a role playing game, but like it's kind of a role playing game in the sense that yeah, there's lots totally. of world building that goes on in it. I mean, Christianity has tons of like positive forms of popular revolutionary construction, right? Like the kingdom of God is like this, or it's like this. Um, uh, We talk about like, you know, the communion of the saints and all kinds of other, like really positive ideas that we actually exist in and find important and meaningful to us. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's like Christmas. Like we are, we are literally role-playing Christmas every single year. That's Uh, right. (laughs) At least in my church, in the Catholic church. Like we even (laughs) at midnight mass, they brought a baby Jesus down the aisle and put it in the manger. Like it doesn't get more role-playing than that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So like, I don't know, keep it going. (laughs) Like, um, realize the radical potential of those, of that, like of that world building that we've already done that, like, um, what it might mean to like live in the kingdom of God means like something different than living in like bad capitalism. Yeah. And also uh, addressing those symptoms of capitalism that drive people to reactionary forms of religion. Like the reason that West pulls out for uh, these bourgeois phenomenon of religion is uh, that people have kind of lost the sense of belonging. They don't feel uh, comfortable where they are. They don't feel moored. And these uh, reactionary forms of religion give them exactly that. And it's like, well, we need other kinds of popular forms of belonging, uh, not for the same reactionary reasons uh, so that we can just kind of get on with our like capitalist lives, uh, but so that we can actually do the hard work of like making people feel safe, uh, talking with other people about the world that they want, uh, a different world where they don't have to, constantly flit around between like completely arbitrary doctrinal squabbles or like uh making america great again or eating at chick-fil-a because it's a a consumer experience or something i don't know like yeah like cracker barrel christianity like there are better ways of doing it oh man (laughs) cracker barrel christianity is coming out uh next month on wiffenstock uh you can can get it for uh 14.99 uh it's good stuff (laughs) just like uh just like grandma used to make just like grandma used to make. Oh, no. <laughs> no, you don't want that. <laughs> Unless your grandma is like a radical prison abolitionist Quaker, in which case you do want that. Yeah, then it's okay. Quaker Barrel. Quaker Barrel. Ooh, I would eat there. It would yeah, just be oatmeal, uh... though, right? It's just oatmeal. <laughs> Just oatmeal, and you have to wait around for like everyone to order first. Uh, when <laughs> by the time the spirit leads, 
Um, cool. So I guess we solved it. Uh, we solved the puzzle of materialism and religion. Um, everyone was uh, was waiting, and they keep asking us. And now, uh, now you can just tell them. Well, you can listen to this podcast for an hour, and you, <laughs> you'll have you'll have zero further questions. Yeah, I mean, I guess the moral of the story is just like I don't know, be more materialist. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Marxists and religious folks alike. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, I can get down with that. <laughs> also, I read this essay. It's seriously not long. And there's, there's a, I don't know. Wetz is a really good writer, and he, I think, makes these points in ways that are really digestible and uh, good for your Bible study group. Yeah, I agree. I was telling Dean before we started recording that, like, uh, first of all, it's a very concise and well organized essay. Uh, but it's also written completely in his voice. Like I can imagine him saying every one of these words and sentences, mm-hmm. and it's amazing. Um, yeah, that's true. If you guys ever get the opportunity to go see Cornell West speak, you should do it because it's great. Uh, one time I saw him speak uh, at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, and it was like going to church in the best possible way. Like <laughs> it wasn't like it wasn't boring. It was good. Like good. <laughs> it's like going to good church and not bad church. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, i appreciate that you uh you realize that saying going to church immediately was like a potentially a oh. massive turn off so well played yeah, yeah yeah there wasn't like a praise band i guess is what i'm trying to say <laughs> uh yeah that's good i've never heard cornelis speak but he did come to toronto and uh i i couldn't go because the classroom that he was speaking in was packed out immediately and then also into the halls and my professor tried to go and he went to an overflow room and he was like even from there <laughs> it was like a real spiritual experience so that's cool yeah it's cool for sure cornell west is great <laughs> um good all right well uh soon we'll get back to like our regularly scheduled programming of having other people come on this podcast the holidays i don't know it's just too hard to like get in touch with other people and do the work that you have to do to like have a good conversation with somebody that's a, a responsible use of their time. So uh, hopefully soon we'll have some good good folks on. Um, but I'm I'm gonna go away this next week. So who knows what we're gonna do next week? Not me. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Um, if you liked this episode and you've liked other episodes, uh, maybe subscribe to us on iTunes. Maybe leave us an iTunes review. If you notice, we didn't have an iTunes an iTunes review in this episode. So if you want to uh, replenish our storehouses of good content to read before we get into these episodes, uh, that's how you can do it. <laughs> um, let's see. Uh, you can, you should follow us on Twitter cause we tweet lots of good and funny things. Uh, we got a Facebook page you can like, we've got another Facebook group called the Magnificast basement. You should try to jump into that too. And uh, you can have conversations with other Magnificasters and us and post articles and good Good stuff like that. Um, also, if you're feeling extremely charitable and cool, uh, you can uh, support us on Patreon and give us like a dollar or t- or three dollars or five dollars. And uh, through that transaction, you can gain your very own uh, PhD in Dreyer studies. Uh, and that's just I know what you want. That's like probably <laughs> what you're all about. You've been thinking about how you get that. And that's just how you do it. Um, uh, you can also do that if you're not feeling charitable and if you are feeling uncool. You can do it begrudgingly and completely squarely, but it just it works best if you're charitable. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the money <laughs> the money goes toward more buttons best if it's charitably given. That's right. Uh, speaking of buttons, I guess I should have said this at the beginning of the episode. Uh, 
I had finally um, a bit of time to myself, well, free time, and I mailed the buttons out to everybody. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, all you good, all you good Patreon folks out there, you should be getting a button in your mail. I sent it to all of the people. I sent it to people in Tennessee. I sent it to people in Czech Republic. I sent it to people in in Great Britain. All the places with the wrong names. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, you should be getting those in the mail. If you guys get that button, what you should do is put it on your favorite coat, take a picture of yourself, and tell us on Twitter. We'd love to see how good you look with that button because it will make you look really good. You sure will. I think. Uh, that's also why you should donate if you're feeling uncool. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, before we leave, uh, just quick shout out to Mario Armstrong for the really dope intro beats, and also shout out to The Illogical Spoon uh, for uh, letting us appropriate their song for the outro. We've never actually asked them if it was okay, we just did it, and they haven't said anything about it since, so here we go. <laughs> they they made a, they made, did make a glowing blog post about how, how it was cool that uh, they found that we were using it, so I just take that as, as permission. <laughs> That's a big thumbs up, yeah. <laughs> All right. See y'all next week. <laughs> Jackson, you keep your hoods up. You keep your hoods up. And you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up. Well, you keep your hoods up. And you stay up late. Don't mind a cold night, but might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. Besides, what else are you gonna do? Is we kissed in the alley by the Michigan theater. Fall snow was blowing in the lights of the downtown. Saw a spark in your eyes, I just spoke it Said we're gonna turn this whole place upside down Then you said, my dear, do you